This is the Nietzsche Podcast. So for all the faults of the latter part of the birth of tragedy, nevertheless, Nietzsche, in all of the chapters, but I guess I would say maybe the the final one, he actually does a very good job of sort of summarizing a lot of the key points of birth of tragedy in philosophical terms. And we're sort of, I think, out of the woods in terms of any of the really complicated stuff. This should all be pretty easy if you've paid attention and followed along up to this point. And there's not too much Wagner Wagner worship (laughs) in these uh, later, uh, in the very last sections. And so um, we'll just get into section 22, um, where he says, Let the attentive friend imagine the effect of a true musical tragedy purely and simply, as he knows it from experience. I think I have so portrayed the phenomenon of this effect in both its phases that he can now interpret his own experiences. For he will recollect how, with regard to the myth which passed in front of him, he felt himself exalted to a kind of omniscience, as if his visual faculty were no longer merely a surface faculty, but capable of penetrating into the interior, as if he now saw before him, with the aid of music, the waves of the will, the conflict of motives, and the swelling flood of the passions, sensuously visible, as it were, like a multitude of vividly moving lines and figures. And he felt he could dip into the most delicate secrets of unconscious emotions, end quote. So uh, it's worth pointing out uh, very quickly here, Schopenhauer's essay uh, on the, I think it's like on the difference between thing and itself and appearance. It's one of his sort of, uh, in his uh, paralipomena, you know, uh, his uh, sort of extracts or scraps, you know, what the equivalent in Nietzsche is the naklas, right? Where Schopenhauer writes that uh, w- just as we know nothing of the surf or of, of the interior of the earth, we don't we know nothing of the great solid masses of the interior, but merely the surface and the contours of the surface. That's all that our eye sees, right, visibly. Um, that is the difference between thing and itself and appearance. It's uh, literally analogous to looking at the surface of the earth versus being able to having vision to penetrate into the very depths of what is actually on the inside. And so Nietzsche is saying in the tragic experience in the, um, in the sensation or the state of mind of losing oneself in art, but particularly tragedy. And I mean, he's saying you can have this experience because we have this example in modern day tragic art in the form of Tristan and Isolde, um, and, uh, I should link to some, you know, YouTube, uh, link to some of the musical performances of, of that work, because it's some of my favorite, uh, musical passages from Wagner, but it, I don't know if we would really get the full effect unless you were seeing the opera performed. Right. But in any case, um, he's saying that you see the waves of the will, right. The, that's the inner intelligible character of the world. That's the thing in itself, according to Schopenhauer. And um, the conflict of motives and the sw- swelling flood of the passions. I mean, these are sort of ways that we experience the will, the thing in itself, right? It's our own inner intelligible content. And um, it's, it's, it's just one of the most um, important um, influences of Schopenhauer on the thought of Nietzsche, that he, even though Schopenhauer is trying to extrapolate this into some claim about the noumenon, which is the, I mean, Nietzsche is very resistant to that, right? Especially in his later work, he's not so much resistant to it here. But you can see then in the origin of Nietzsche's thought, how he was thinking that way and how he 
he's greatly inspired by the idea that the the actual intelligible content of the world as such is the passions, which is the very thing that we um, find in, within ourselves when we look within ourselves. It's the most real, immediate thing to our own experience. Um, it's the world that we live in as a human world. And so rather than extrapolating from that, uh, that experience of our own human world, our perspectival human world into a claim about the nature of all reality. Um, you know, rather than that, Nietzsche talks about in his later work, how we, all of our claims about broader reality are actually reflective of our perspective, you know, from the human world. But in any case, so Nietzsche, again, is speaking about music as the direct experience with the waves of the will. Um, so tragedy r- literally has the ability for you to make you transcend the phenomena noumena distinction. Nietzsche has taken Schopenhauer's work in that direction. It's very fascinating. Again, I mean, you know, all the criticisms later Nietzsche has for this certainly apply to such an almost mystical claim. But it's um, it's characters like that in philosophy who make claims like that that interest us the most, right? It's, I mean, at least myself, speaking for myself only. I've, I like reading um, claims that are extreme or outside the norm or spoken unequivocally without all this hedging. And, um, you know, I, I like ideas like that. And so I think that's one of the things that captivated me about Nietzsche in, in this book is just that claim that music has this, this mystical metaphysical character throughout the work that Nietzsche, I think, genuinely believes at this point in his philosophy. And so, um, and remember what he said at the beginning of the book, right? Uh, I'll just go back and quote it um, because he's talking about having a direct experience, right? And he said, we shall have gained much for the science of aesthetics once we perceive not merely by logical inference, but with the immediate certainty of vision. And so he's um, sort of um, impelling us uh, as his audience to, um, go out and engage with this experience with tragic art and um, to directly apprehend all of the truths that he's been telling us in this book that he sa- he says you can have direct experience with them. And um, so, yeah, we'll move on. Quote, uh, while he thus becomes conscious of the highest exaltation of his instincts for clarity and transfiguration. So this is Nietzsche speaking of the listener engaging in the tragic experience, right? Or the audience member. Um, he nevertheless feels just as definitely that this long series of Apollinean artistic effects still does not generate that blessed continuance and willless contemplation which the plastic art and the epic poet, that is to say, the strictly Apollinean artists evoke in him with their artistic productions. Um, and just to break off again, remember, I think I... I think I even said it very early on when we were talking about it, that the way he describes the Apollinian, the purely Apollinian, right? Simply the artistic art, the epic, uh, you know, the Apollinian paean might be one. Even in a musical form, the regular rhythmic strumming of the the lyre or the kithra, um, you know, painting, sculpture, and all that. Um, These are... uh, in these works of art, in this artistic experience, in this artistic process, one loses himself in willless contemplation. It is almost word for word 
the way Schopenhauer speaks of the artistic, um, the goal of art, of the point of aesthetics, and the deep connection of aesthetics to Schopenhauer's um, remedy for life in some sense. And yet uh, by bringing in the Dionysian, which had been sort of ignored in aesthetics as much as anything, and maybe that's a point that I haven't sufficiently emphasized. I mean, I have emphasized that Nietzsche, that many of the sort of classical theories of art or aesthetics or the way that many um, philosophers tended to approach art, tended to treat it as a monism. And I think I point out the irony that Nietzsche ultimately settles on a monism, the will to power, right? But that in aesthetics, he um, is contrarian in coming up with this dualism of the Apollonian and Dionysian by pointing out how confounded under the title of art or the word art, we have these two very different things that are actually contradictory. And so what we understand by art includes um, mutually exclusive concepts, but that in any case, the, the point that I maybe haven't sufficiently emphasized is how we've talked a lot throughout the podcast about how the Dionysian is this thing. Uh, and we, we discuss, you know, you can refer back to the differences between the way he talks about the Dionysian here versus in his later work and how it's similar, how it's different, how the idea evolved. Um, but that whatever the Dionysian is at any point in his career, it's always something that he's taking up for, which is sort of a relic of an earlier age that we've forgotten and that he thinks would be revitalizing to our society. And so I, I guess what I'm pointing out is that Apollinian art seems to have been, I mean, it's very classical, right? So, you know, in figures like Goethe and in figures like Schopenhauer and figures like Hegel, all of the sort of trendsetters of German culture had regarded aesthetics in a very Apollinian way. And Nietzsche is bringing in this forgotten pagan element that has not been sufficiently carried into our modern culture and um, trying to rescue it or saying that it may rescue us really more importantly, that, that we are lacking something because we have excised this. And I guess I'm just pointing out that there is a parallel into the way he looks at the Dionysian element of Greece, say, morally, right? As Dionysus versus the crucified, that is his great moral crusade. Or the Dionysian sort of life affirmation, that whole, the, a religion of life versus a religion uh, of, which is condemnatory of life in the world. I guess I'm pointing out that in, before Nietzsche, you know, <laughs> involves himself in these fights in epistemology or morality and religion and all of these other domains of philosophy, he first visits aesthetics and he does the same thing here. He points out how there's an element of the arts which um, has been ignored by modern aesthetics. And, um, you know, and it's, it's the thing that now that he's shown that we're living in this Alexandrian Socratic age, well, maybe not shown. He's certainly asserted it. And he would he would revise that later, by the way. It's very different to say we're living in a, in a Christian age, although I think he would... I mean, I think the, the critique of society, um, European society, as having been clutched by Alexandrianism is at least interesting enough to consider or maybe hold simultaneously with the analysis of European society as influenced or shaped or molded by Christianity... In any case, um, now that he's sort of laid out his case for that and we understand the way that the Socratic um, spirit, so, so to speak, views art, um, 
we realize the Socratic wants to excise the Dionysian, and it's not really Apollinian and doesn't really understand the Apollinian either because it's so thoroughly inartistic. But it would make sense that the Apollinian would sort of survive, that that would be the surviving art force, the one that we understand the most. I mean, Nietzsche alleges that opera is sort of like an almost an Alexandrian anti-art, modern contemporary operas that he criticizes. But in any case, this, you know, this would maybe explain why aesthetics has always been relegated to the second place or last place in terms of importance in philosophy. And it would explain why, um, you know, if our entire society is organized around these principles of reason and uh, knowledge and utility, ultimately, tending toward utility, right? Because it's reason and knowledge with this moral bent. Um, that it would naturally take such a view of art as Socrates takes. That these are pleasurable illusions, representations. But, you know, because uh, only knowledge or true knowledge, true reason is what apprehends the truth. And the world of appearances is of lesser truth than the um, the pure knowledge that one could attain strictly through the inner intellect, right? Not muddied by the senses. Well, art is an even further degree of representation away from that. It's an even more illusory reality. As Nietzsche says at the beginning of the book, it's the Apollinian is mere appearance of mere appearance, an even higher level of illusion. Nietzsche, of course, um, praises this for its redemptive power, right? Um, but again, I guess I'm digressing here, as is my habit, but it's that we should Nietzsche's picture that he presents of us living in an Alexandrian society. It makes sense that the Apollinian view of what art is is what would primarily exist in philosophy, and why such a view within the overarching nesting framework of Socratism would relegate art to lesser importance, and would therefore, um, you know, uh, benefit greatly from. Um, bringing the Dionysian back into our understanding. So uh, we'll move on here. Um, so Nietzsche's talking, uh, I, I mean, I guess we'll go back to it. I'll just sort of summarize. He's talking about having this direct experience of tragic art and how it's, even though we have this Apollinian artistic experience, being conscious of the highest exaltation of his instincts for clarity and transfiguration, nevertheless, it's not quite the same as purely Apollinian art. Because, quote, he beholds the transfigured world of the stage and nevertheless denies it. He sees the tragic hero before him in epic clearness and beauty and nevertheless rejoices in his annihilation. He comprehends the action deep down and yet likes to flee into the incomprehensible. He feels the actions of the hero to be justified and is nevertheless still more elated when these actions annihilate their agent. He shudders at the sufferings which will befall the hero and yet anticipates them in a higher, much more overpowering joy. He sees more extensively and profoundly than ever, and yet wishes he were blind. How must we derive this curious internal bifurcation, this blunting of the Apollinian point, if not from the Dionysian magic, that, though apparently exciting the Apollinian emotions to their highest pitch, still retains the power to force into its service his excess of Apollinian force? The tragic myth is to be understood only as a symbolization of Dionysian wisdom through Apollinian artifices. Um... 
end quote. So Nietzsche provides us in these last few chapters a few actually more simplified formulas, I think, in sentences like that um, for stating quite plainly how these two mutually exclusive forces are reconciled in art. I mean, Nietzsche has gone through, at times, labyrinthian explanations of how the Apollinean and the Dionysian interact, but here we have the simple formula. The tragic myth is to be understood only as a symbolization of Dionysian wisdom through Apollinean artifices, um, which, you know, we've explained a great detail. The ability to render an image, but this image is the image of the Dionysian, which is the image-shattering image. Um, and so that produces this bifurcated inner state that he just described. And, um, you know, there are a lot of different art forms, modern art forms that we could tie to tragic art. And I think in the medium of film, we've certainly seen, uh, we've certainly seen works of art that I think qualify in conjuring the inner states that Nietzsche is talking about. I'm not going to mention any of them because that would take us too far off the track. But, um, you know, maybe that'll be an interesting thing for people to comment on when this eventually is uh, posted somewhere where people can leave comments. Um, you know, what, what films do you uh, think conjure the, the tragic, right? Um, we're going to skip uh, over past a quotation from Isolde. Uh, the next paragraph is simply Nietzsche sort of reiterating his um, his attack on conventional aestheticians. And he sort of mentions what we were just talking about, um, that, uh, what does he say? Our aestheticians have nothing to say about this return to the primordial home or the fraternal union of the two art deities, nor of the excitement of the hearer, which is Apollinian as well as Dionysian but they never tire of characterizing the struggle of the hero with fate, the triumph of the moral world order, or the purgation of the emotions through tragedy as the essence of the tragic. And he goes on to say, I, I don't think they're very aesthetically sens sensitive at all if they don't really understand, um, you know, these two art forces. Um, of course, we wouldn't expect modern day art critics to <laughs> speak in the language of speaking of these two art deities. But we might say that, um, you know, this perception of art as this interplay of individuation and dissolution uh, in different proportions is something that is relatively new to Nietzsche and um, or new in Nietzsche um, and that we don't really see in aesthetics before that. But notice he, he singles out, they never tire of characterizing the struggle of the hero with fate or the triumph of the moral world order. This underlies, I think, or highlights a one of the themes throughout the entire book, which is art as opposed to morality. An artistic metaphysics, right, as opposed to a moral metaphysics, which means in Nietzsche's case, less of an attempt to provide ontological first principles via reason, right? He, he, is, he is doing an artist metaphysics, as he admits, but it's not really taking that form. It's more an artistic world picture, arrived at by the likes of inclination, instinct, taste, intuition, right? There's, those are his first principles, and he's very open about that. Um, but So their first principles not attained by reason, but prior to reason, apart from reason, outside of reason. Uh, it's a view of the world informed by Schopenhauer's world as well, 
um, and the Eastern influences that inspired Schopenhauer. I mean, he talks about the returning to the bosom of the primordial one here, and he capitalizes the word one. But all of that, though, fundamentally, he's attempting to redeem, justify, elevate life by means of the beautiful, or by, by means of aesthetics, to speak more properly. Does, because he's going to talk about how it's not strictly beauty that is um, the coin of the realm in aesthetics, which is another very interesting notion. Um, but this is opposed to morality in the Christian worldview and in the Socratic worldview as the justification for life, right? Even though the Socratic Alexandrian view of the world is in many respects distinct and different from the Christian, they share many things in common, and one of them is the usurpation of a mythic artistic justification for life with a justification for life based on morality. Right action or right belief is what justifies life. The world is to be regarded as morally significant, right? Or the... The moral implications or moral interpretation of life is what is most important, and thus the way we interpret stories about people and stories about lives. We look at the moral element as the most significant, right? And so this is what we see in our modern art criticism. It's true in Nietzsche's time, probably even more true today, um, where oftentimes... There's almost nothing other than the moral interpretation that people can bring to um, to a story that's seen in some sense, that's taught among literary critics as the sort of the almost the, the, the how-to of how to dissect a story, right, in many respects. And Nietzsche is um, fundamentally opposed to this moral interpretation of the world even here, which is why he has that silent hostility to Christianity. Um, but he also mentions another thing, the purgation of the emotions through tragedy, purging negative emotions, catharsis. That's a common term. And he, he talks about that in the next paragraph. Quote, never since Aristotle has an explanation of the tragic effect been offered from which aesthetic states or an aesthetic activity of the listener could be inferred. Um, the serious events are supposed to prompt pity and fear to discharge themselves in a way that relieves us. Now we are supposed to feel elevated and inspired by the triumph of good and noble principles at the sacrifice of the hero and in the interest of a moral vision of the universe. I am sure that for countless men, precisely this and only this is the effect of tragedy, but it plainly follows that all these men, together with their interpreting aestheticians, have had no experience of tragedy as a supreme art. Um, so, quite simply, Nietzsche has made a case for what the tragic is, what the aesthetic experience of the tragic is. And um, this isn't it. I mean, he's basically just given us a description of what catharsis is, right? And said this, I mean, we may notice this, the relief from negative feelings um, is not what the, uh, what the tragic is. And he's going to, he'll, he'll expand on this in a second. So I'll just keep reading. Quote, the pathological discharge, the catharsis of Aristotle, of which philologists are not sure whether it should be included among medical or moral phenomena, recalls a remarkable notion of Goethe's. Without a lively pathological interest, Goethe says, Nietzsche's quoting from Goethe here, I too have never yet succeeded in elaborating a tragic situation of any kind, and hence I have rather avoided than sought it. 
Can it perhaps have been yet another merit of the ancients that the deepest pathos was with them merely aesthetic play, while with us the truth of nature must cooperate in order to produce such a work? Now, okay, so a word on Aristotle. The reason why, maybe this will make this make a little bit more sense, because we could say that, well, isn't Nietzsche saying that tragedy entices us to life and allows us to go on living? So couldn't something like a catharsis be an explanatory framework for why tragedy has that effect? Well, let's look at it like this. Plato held that um, tragedy would make you, um, you know, melancholy and uh, it would it would through mimesis right the art would um that different forms of art and emotions and mind states expressed through art and poetry can infect people and radiate through society we've spoken about this throughout and as a result of that belief or therefore art must be controlled and must be regarded as dangerous because the Socratic project, as expressed by Socrates in Plato's work, uh, The Republic, for example, is the moral perfection of mankind. And therefore, all of these forms of art, which could basically disturb what is otherwise a noble character <laughs> being shaped by noble influences, because that's what, you know, uh, we, we, we're going to succeed and thrive or, you know, fail and be corrupted according to the environment that we are in and that we create around ourselves. So by allowing in, um, you know, this melancholic forms of art, you're ruining your moral character. Whereas Aristotle believes in this catharsis model that, well, Plato was wrong about tragedy being bad for you, essentially, that it's actually good for you because it allows you to discharge those bad feelings, right? You can discharge pity and fear and, um, you know, states of mind or emotions that are not going to be helpful to you. And um, you can do so in the manner of tragedy and therefore be, it, it's another way of uh, attaining the moral perfection of mankind, right? So again, so what is the difference with Nietzsche? Is that it's an aesthetic justification for life, tragedy, it's not a moral justification, and he goes on, that's why he goes on to talk about these other interpretations of tragedy as, you know, the sacrifice of the hero in the interest of a moral vision of the universe is these are all moral um, diagnoses of what tragedy is. And, um, of, and that's why he says, you know, the catharsis of Aristotle, philologists are not sure if it's a medical or moral phenomena. Well, it's because... Aristotle uh, is using it to basically um, as a as a means of uh, flushing out your psyche in the way that you know a doctor might flush out your you know intestine or something like that. Sorry, it would get a little gross, but you know what I'm saying here. Um, that in any case, what Goethe's words, I think Nietzsche is attempting to indicate to us in context of his broader argument is that once again, that what Goethe, his remarkable notion that he hits on is the fundamental difference with how we might approach something like tragedy in the Greeks. And Nietzsche has given us now an understanding of why that might be, that we've been thoroughly shaped by Socratism for um, thousands of years. And for Goethe to really elaborate on a tragic situation, 
He says he needs a lively pathological interest. Um, and notice Nietzsche talks about the pathological discharge, the catharsis of Aristotle. So Goethe feels that he actually has a has to fixate on the pathological in order to um, elaborate a tragic scene or tragic characters. Um, and basically concludes with the idea that, wow, how different must we be from the Greeks that for them this is mere aesthetic play. We, you know, we could recall the Heraclitian innocence, right? child at play being sort of the essence of the artistic spirit for Nietzsche, um, or at least the Greek artistic spirit that he wants to recapture, which he thinks is a more purely artistic spirit. And so no one's ever come up with a better um, explanation of tragedy since Aristotle, Nietzsche sang, and even Aristotle, we can infer, was basically wrong. You know, he was corrupted by Plato and Socrates. Um, he was a, a thorough Alexandrian, right? He's the man who educated Alexander. And so that sort of leads us into the next paragraph where Nietzsche says, quote, we can now answer this profound final question in the affirmative after our glorious experiences. Having found to our astonishment that the deepest, deep, bleh, deepest pathos can indeed be merely aesthetic play, as in the case of musical tragedy. Therefore, we are justified in believing that now for the first time, the primal phenomenon of the tragic can be described to some degree of success. Anyone who still persists in talking only of those vicarious effects proceeding from extra aesthetic spheres and who does not feel he is above the pathological moral process should despair of his aesthetic nature. Um, and we'll break off there. Um, so the moral, just as Nietzsche feels that the moral interpretation of the world is a sort of, um, it's something that we've layered on and have always required metaphysics to, uh, to layer onto the world, and that by its very nature condemns reality as it is, and thus is sort of extra-worldly, otherworldly. Um, these are the moral interpretation of aesthetics and the vicarious effects, the effects that, um, you know, of the moral effect that um, a work of art has on your character. That's something that is extra-aesthetic. It's other aesthetic. It's, uh, you know, in the sense of otherworldly, it's, um, it's not of the art world. And the next paragraph is Nietzsche's attack on the critic, who he says, uh, in his sphere, everything has been artificial and merely whitewashed with an appearance of life. Um, further down, he says, such critics have constituted the audience. The student, the schoolboy, even the most innocuous female had been unwittingly prepared by education and newspapers for this kind of perception of works of art. Uh, so it's very fascinating, and I think I agree with Nietzsche, and it's another one of those problems that he's perceiving in the 19th century that has only multiplied massively. That everyone's a critic these days. We teach critical analysis. We teach critical thinking, Right. Um, it's in the way that our word for like deeper in more sincere engagement with something is to be critical of it. And um, I mean, this may just seem like a sort of, uh, you know, low hanging fruit or surface level critique of society that we've heard a lot before. Um, but I think given the fact that he has <laughs> written 21 chapters before this uh, on a whole theory of what art is, right? And 
that the critic can now really be understood in the narrative that he's put forward as this really Alexandrian Socratic figure, right? Um, We can see that his criticism here has a lot more depth to it. It's funny, it's his criticism of the critics, right? And so he says, quote, confronted with such a public, the nobler natures among the artists counted upon exciting their moral religious emotions and the appeal to the moral world order intervened vicariously where some powerful artistic magic magic ought to enrapture the genuine listener or some more imposing or at all events exciting trend of the contemporary political and social world was so vividly presented by the dramatist that the listener could forget his critical exhaustion and abandon himself to emotions similar to those felt in patriotic and warlike moments. Uh, an alienation from the true aims of art that sometimes had to result in an outright cult of tendentiousness. So, again, does any of that sound familiar to our modern art world, right? Um, we are, our mode of engagement with art is criticism, is being critics. The um, the critic is, as Nietzsche defies him, or defines him, a lay person in regard, in respect to art. It, like looking at art as an almost like the true artistic sp- experience, right? Is a mythic, re- mytho-religic, ex- re- mytho-religic? Religio-mythic. That sounds better. That rolls off the tongue better. It's a religio-mythic experience in, in Nietzsche's view. And people who have not been initiated into that, who are not themselves artists or who, who are not aesthetically sensitive enough to have the to have the experience of say the tragic where in the way that he describes the actual tragic experience of the ancient greek revelers right these were again initiates in a religious ceremony so it's not that they all had to be artists but they all had a genuine belief and reverence in these mysteries and had religious experiences. Um, that was the, that was the, the goal and the nature of what art was. And the critic, when we think about it, it's like this intellectual figure who analyzes works of art and breaks them down and tells us about the, um, you know, the moral nature of the story and the characters. And, uh, we see stories as basically having that Aesopian content, um, of having some moral lesson to teach us. And then as it becomes even further degraded, just stories just portray some trend in the contemporary political and social world. Um, and so what does he say? Um, while the critic got the upper hand in the theater and the concert hall, the journalist and the schools and the press and society, art degenerated into a particularly lowly topic of conversation. And aesthetic criticism was used as a means of uniting a vain, distracted, selfish, and moreover piteously unoriginable, unoriginal sociability, whose character is suggested by Schopenhauer's parable of the porcupines. And that's you know it's a story about how porcupines they might want to get together close for warmth, but they've got those spikes, and uh, they the closer they get, the more they prick each other. Um, I believe that's in Schopenhauer's original parable. That's just sort of a parable similar to like Sartre's like hell is other people um, that we can't live without each other, but we can't live with one another either. And it's another way of Schopenhauer, um, you know, uh, (laughs) explaining why there's nothing to get out of life. 
But uh, Nietzsche is sort of, it, he's using that uh, parable to make a criticism of his contemporary society. Um, that's That the public is vain, distracted, and selfish. And when we try, art can't unify us anymore because it's like trying to bring together a bunch of porcupines into a huddled mass. Um, you know, maybe we'll physically assemble in the theater, but are we really united uh, breaking down our individuality and entering into this communion where all are one as Greeks. No. And that's what he hoped Wagner would do at the Bayreuth Festival, by the way. But um, it's very interesting as criticism. The The critic got the upper hand in theater and concert hall. Still true today. The journalist in the schools. Still true today. Uh, the press and society. Still true today. Um, Nietzsche's really laying out a... Um, like a theory of the cathedral long before anyone else uh, or a criticism of society sort of on that basis um, that we have this ideology, this Alexandrian Socratic ideology based on utilitarianism, um, the theoretic moralizing optimistic view of the world that has gained hold that's thoroughly unartistic and um, has no other religion besides this um, Socratism. And uh, that's who runs uh, the art world because the critics have taken over. So the Alexandrians have destroyed art there. Uh, the journalists have taken over the schools. So we're not, professors are not uh, properly educating students anymore. They're getting the same education um, or the same, they're treating knowledge the way the journalist treats knowledge which is surface level, it's trivial, um, it's based on actually what generates the most attention and um, uh, follows like the public's moral compass and what will generate the most moral outrage is what will get the most attention, for example. Um, and the press as overall uh, rules over society. And I mean, you know, or they gain the upper hand in society. Um, and art degenerated accordingly. Um, so, and, you know, the argument for the press, you know, it's like you could really argue the propaganda organ of any um, government is its most powerful um, institution. Um, you know, obviously we would want to think about like the military or the police, but uh, there's a great scene in Conan the Barbarian when um, uh, Thulsa Doom explains to uh, Conan why flesh is stronger than steel. And it's because you need uh, you know, an arm made of flesh to hold the sword made out of steel and swing it. That it's the, the will that you really need, right? And he demonstrates this by ordering one of his like, cult followers to jump to her death, which she does without hesitation, right? And just at his word, sort of showing him like, okay, I control people's wills. Uh, I control... Um, Therefore, then, you know, I, that's the ultimate form of control. And so, um, I don't know, that's, I guess we're getting off a topic a little bit, but I, I find Nietzsche's cultural criticisms, you know, interesting because he's seeing things not in a, you know, some sort of silly conspiratorial view as people often paint this, but as an ideology that's gained ascendancy that, um, you know, um, has taken over the will of society, basically. That we all and and I mean the way 
the way he describes this, and I think it's in perhaps neutral enough terms that I think most people would agree that that's the ideology that has obtained in society um, among like the technocracy or bureaucracies or whatever. Um, and so we'll move on to the next uh, section, 23. Whoever wishes to test rigorously to what extent he himself is related to the true aesthetic listener or belongs to the community of the Socratic critical persons needs only to examine sincerely the feeling with which he accepts miracles represented on the stage. Whether he feels his historical sense, which insists on strict psychological causality, insulted by them, whether he makes a benevolent concession and, and admits the miracle as a phenomenon intelligible to childhood but alien to him, or whether he experiences anything else. For in this way, he will be able to, de to determine to what extent he is capable of understanding myth as a concentrated image of the world that, as a condensation of phenomena, cannot dispense with miracles. Um, so, myth, a concentrated image of the world. Um, I don't know to what extent we've talked about it, but there is a very interesting aspect of, um, or one way of looking at art, or religion is condensing and expanding um, really your attention, right? Um, and how, uh, I think I have talked about it, that that's one sort of way of looking at religious experiences is that it narrows your focus to like a single point. Uh, so, um, you know, for example, uh, doing a mantra meditation or um, focusing on your breath, we find that in Eastern religions or contemplative prayer, that tradition among the Catholics. Um, and that we might say the earliest sort of religious ideas were often in the forms of idols, of um, sites of sacred worship, where you sort of concentrated the divine into a single physical object and, or into a single place. And that takes the form in the drama of the miracle. That's how we represent that sort of... Um, I don't know. It's like the miracle is like the supernatural, the divine, that which uh, the exception to the rule, the breaking of the ordinary, um, that which it was that which imposed itself on the, um, you know, on the early human beings as gods and deities and religious happenings, because um, anything that uh, strongly impresses itself into your consciousness, either positively or negatively. Um, I may have talked about this before, but Jacob Spieth, his uh, studies into the um, Eve tribe, um, you know, any, the, the, the various examples they give of things which are deified as like a, made into a God basically, were like a, a termite mound that someone hides behind that saves them. Or a, lost and thirsty person who finds a stream that stream is now a god right um anything that uh unexpectedly or profoundly alters your fate or impresses itself into your conscious awareness can become deified um and so the nietzsche is pointing to the miracle as um i don't know a recapturing of that feeling that something a feeling of encountering some phenomenon in a world that you don't fully understand the laws of that profoundly impacts your life. Um, you know, that's often portrayed in the religious fiction as a miracle. 
And most of us don't believe in miracles in ordinary everyday life anymore, right? That's not realistic. Um, and, you know, again, Nietzsche has basically argued against realism in art and given his criticism of Socratism, Alexandrianism, whatever. It should be very clear why by now. And so since we can't permit miracles, we can't permit our myth-making faculty to run awry in our interpretation of the everyday phenomenal world, neither can we now allow it into the art world because we have this Socratic critical view. Or rather, Nietzsche says, you can know whether you um, have are too Socratic critical if you permit miracles or not. Now, I mean, what does this mean in modern storytelling? Like, we might look to filmmaking... Um, uh, you know, here, I, I will give a specific example and go out on a limb uh, that you you probably are not a very, uh, a true aesthetic listener, as Nietzsche says, if you can't uh, tolerate a David Lynch film. If you, if you are too frustrated by the lack of um, logic in the narrative and in the world and in his storytelling and at the sacrifice of that in exchange for what are um, those sort of profoundly powerful images and ideas and um, representations in his work that often do take the form of miracles or a deus machina. Um, so uh, there you go. I'm, I'm saying <laughs> David Lynch would get Nietzsche's approval, um, or maybe not, because you know he's into transcendental meditation and denying the world that we live in and universal love and all that but hey his movies are genuinely artistic and i think that's they do defy sort of the even though he's loved by critics so maybe it's a, a bad example but uh you know because art critics love to to like mystifying and um complicated works of art which is i think why they like david lynch and having their theories about what the plot really means right um but in any case uh getting off the track here uh We'll get back to the text. Um, so he basically says, uh, it's probable that almost everyone finds that, quote, the critical historical spirit of our culture has so affected him that he can only make the former existence of myth credible to himself by means of scholarship through intermediary abstractions. But without myth, every culture loses the healthy natural power of its creativity. Only a horizon defined by myths completes and unifies a whole cultural movement. Myth alone saves all the powers of the imagination and of the Apollonian dream from their aimless wanderings. The images of the myth have to be the unnoticed, omnipresent, demonic guardians under whose care the young soul grows to maturity so, and uh, whose signs help the man to interpret his life and struggles. Okay, we'll end there. So that, again, is the problem because we might say, well, what's the problem with this? I like being critical and analytical. And even if you must be critical and analytical, Nietzsche is trying to resurrect the Dionysian and saying, well, yes, but we need the Dionysian um, in order to have the full artistic experience, which is mythic, which actually recaptures that mythopoeic power that we discussed, that he thinks the myth-making is what makes the religion live, what makes the meaning in our lives, right? That's 
how we continually renew it and feel that our lives are worth living. And so we can see how Nietzsche's aesthetic justification for life here is an attempt to recapture the power of religion to give meaning to our lives and to generate this through art. And in a sense, for art to generate new religious sentiments or feelings. And that's because art, in Nietzsche's view, was originally part of religion. It was the part that was that gave religion life. And it was the Socratic faculty that snuffed that out and basically has made our religions just historical religions, right? That we have to understand miracles now through like scholarship and all of these. Uh, I remember I saw like a, a, a biblical scholar saying, like where they were questioning on the miracle of Moses parting the Red Sea. And he's like, well, it's likely that at that time, the Red Sea was more like the Reed Sea, that it was shallow waters that weren't all, you know, where the tides kind of shifted from time to time. And maybe Moses just sort of, uh, you know, knew when the proper time to cross like a certain uh, area of shallow waters was and knew that his pursuers would get drowned uh, when the tides, you know, were high again later. And I just remember hearing this and, and thinking that that takes all the magic out of the story. It by making it explicable within like a scientific framework, you've just made you've made the story. If if you're going to do that to every part of the Bible, you've just made the Bible very unremarkable and unable to like impact my life in any way. Um, you know, if you're going to say, oh, like, if you're going to have a similar explanation for all the miracles, right? Well, Jesus probably didn't really rise from the dead and he probably didn't really turn water into wine. It's just a, you know, a metaphor or something or symbolism. It's like, okay, um, without all these abstract intermediary ideas or like, you know, hedging and attempting to um, make it fit into some logical narrative that happened in history. I mean, I, I think Nietzsche's correct that without these sort of... Um, what would we say, um, mental, uh, like rationalization frameworks or whatever that they, they, they have, they, I mean, we really can't just, uh, permit the idea of miracles in the modern day. Granted, there's a lot of people who still believe in that sort of thing, but, um, it really does not fit into our framework for interpreting the world. And thus it has impoverished our ability to engage with art because art is, um, myth making, essentially it is myth making. And, um, you know, Nietzsche, I think sincerely thinks that and thinks that the Socratic, um, opposition to the mythic power. Um, I mean, that's, that is the problem of science and it's an early formulation of the God is dead problem and art as an attempt to find a new way forward. So, uh, okay, we'll go to the next paragraph. He says, By way of comparison, let us now picture the abstract man, untutored by myth, abstract education, abstract morality, abstract law, the abstract state. Let us imagine the lawless roving of the artistic imagination, unchecked by any native myth. Let us think of a culture that has no fixed and sacred primordial site, but is doomed to exhaust all possibilities and to nourish itself wretchedly in all of their cultures. There we have the present age, the result of this Socratism, which is bent on the destruction of myth. End quote. So, um, very little comment except to say it's another thing that I think applies to us today. And 
it's interesting. He says, imagine the lawless roving of the artistic imagination on Czech by native myth that it's actually sort of having like a living artistic, religious myth forming, um, you know, uh, experience having that exist within your culture without that, you, that's what actually gives law and shape to your artistic imagination. Um, and that it's not that Socratism, that the logical way of approaching the world, the theoretic approach, uh, when applied to art, doesn't actually provide uh, laws for art. It, um, I don't know. And then, it, I mean, but here he's not just making an aesthetic criticism. I mean, he does venture into talk talking about how the theoretics given us abstract education, abstract morality, abstract law. Um, that these, you know, these should be things which are um, embodied and integrated into our inner life um, rather than simply abstract principles. Um, he Next, he says, uh, well, he makes a, a criticism of um, France and sort of promotes Germany, which, you know, Kaufman criticizes Nietzsche for in the, in the footnote. He says... Um, basically, uh, we would have to regard our German character with despair if it had become inextricably entangled or even identical with its culture, um, as has been the case in France. Um, he says that that was France's advantage, the identity of the French people with the French culture. Um, and here, you know, so he's using people in the sense of the what would we say the popular culture the culture is popular the culture is necessarily popular and the whole people are necessarily make up the culture it's not simply um the reserve of you know an upper class or something of that nature um france is a very civilized place but post-french revolution especially right they have the ideas of liberty egality or liberty equality and uh brotherhood right um but he says that uh the germans have as yet nothing in common uh with french in this respect and uh it is it is a bit confusing when we look at how nietzsche writes about france and germany later in his career i mean even in his very next book albeit many years later um he's already writing about the french favorably and the germans negatively and so it does seem to be sort of under the influence of Wagner here. But on the other hand, he does actually make a substantive claim about France and the difference between France and Germany. Um, the more surprising thing to me in this passage is not that dig at, Fr at the French because he's making a dig at their sort of um, the identity of their people and culture. That's something that we could say is part of Nietzsche's elitism going forward. The more shocking thing to me is that he says, um, he says that there is, um, okay. Our hopes stretch out longingly toward the perception that beneath this restlessly palpitating cultural life, there is concealed a glorious primordial power that stirs vigorously only at intervals. Uh, and we dream of a, you know, future awakening for it. So the Germans still have something Dionysian and barbaric in them, right? Uh, deep, deep within them. Then he says, it's from this abyss that the German Reformation came forth. 
And, quote, in its chorals, the future tune of German music resounded for the first time. So deep, courageous, and spiritual, so exuberantly good and tender did this choral of Luther sound as the first Dionysian luring call breaking forth from dense thickets at the approach of spring. And in competing echoes, the solemnly exuberant procession of Dionysian revelers responded to whom we are indebted for German music and to whom we shall be indebted for the rebirth of German myth. End quote. So tacit praise for Luther, which is very unusual for Nietzsche, and um, much more shocking than the reverse of his, uh, <laughs> you know, French and German uh, criticism and praise. There is that here he tacitly associates Luther with uh, and the German Reformation with the Dionysian, um, which you know throughout most of his career he is very pro Renaissance. Um, very much against the Reformation uh, and believed it basically undid, undid and spoiled the fruits of the Renaissance. Uh, and Luther is almost always a, a negative figure for Nietzsche. But yet, Luther, he is a, you know, he is a rebel. And um, it was the stirring of something of a German identity. Luther is part of the German identity. He helps to define it, right? And um, carve out, uh, I don't know, carve out a destiny that is, um, you know, uniquely German. So perhaps that's what Nietzsche is seeing in Luther here. I mean, granted, Nietzsche seems like a little bit more um, sympathetic to like socialist, socialistic, revolutionary energy at this early point in his career, funnily enough. Um, and I think that has to do with like Wagner's own revolutionary past. And, um, you know, uh, Nietzsche hadn't really formulated his political ideas or his sort of like moral case for aristocracy yet. Um, okay, moving on. And so, you know, if there's a rebirth of German music, that means that can, there can be a rebirth of German myths. That's what he hopes for. And he, has a couple sentences that sound a lot like later Nietzsche, where he's calling out to his few companions who will hear and understand uh, this aesthetic theory he has laid out and says, we have to um, keep our, uh, our sight fastened to our guides, the Greeks. Um, and so quote, it had to appear to us that the demise of Greek tragedy was brought about through a remarkable and forcible dissociation of these two primordial artistic drives to this process, there corresponded a degeneration and transformation of the character of the Greek people, which calls for serious reflection on how necessary and close the fundamental connections are between art and the people, myth and custom, tragedy and state. The demise of tragedy was at the same time the demise of myth. Until then, the Greeks had felt involuntarily impelled to relate all their experiences immediately to their myths, indeed to understand them only in this relation. Thus, even the immediate present had to appear to them right away, subspecie eternae, and in a certain sense, as timeless, end quote. So, you know, keep our, keep our uh, sight trained on the example of the Greeks in trying to confront our cultural moment now and how we might address the problems we have of our culture now, or indeed even the political problems. Because he says it was 
So he gives us theory of art, uh, of tragedy, created by these two um, mutually hostile and yet ultimately complementary forces. By destroying that, they destroyed tragedy. Through the destruction of tragedy, um, it was the destruction of myth. And the destruction of the myth, mythopoeic power of that capacity within a collective um, you know, he says there's deep connections between art and people, myth and custom, tragedy and the state. Um, so the, you know, again, Nietzsche would say that Socrates and Plato and Aristotle are right, even though um, he would seem to argue, I mean, it's a necessary conclusion of everything he's saying that we should not take his work we shouldn't actually create art for the end of creating some moral outcome, right? Because that would be a theoretic use of art, which would, by that token, be unartistic, right? Would be something added on to the, um, added on to the actual artistic content. Nevertheless, we can see the power that art has, and. I mean, basically saying we'll just simply be more enlightened when we understand that art is not to be regarded as simply um, mere entertainment or distracting illusions, but as something that is deeply um, tied to the destiny of a society. And that through art, you can, through art, through letting certain types of art flourish or destroying certain types of art, you can alter the destiny of a society and even affect its political constitution. Um, okay. Uh, and, oh, and another thing is that basically one of his ways of talking about what we've lost, that the Greeks had, was their um, living in a mythic world where everything was related to their myths and thus the events and details and actions of their lives felt timeless. Um, and so we'll come back to that, but if you know your Nietzsche, you'll know kind of maybe the significance of that. Um, okay. The next paragraph, Nietzsche uh, sort of just elaborates on one of his cultural criticisms that, um, well, by taking away myth, obviously, and taking away that sense of timelessness, that people become fixated on the present moment. That um, says uh, we can't... Um, find rest in the timeless anymore from the burden and greed of the moment. But uh, what does he say? Okay, well, yeah, this is where we're going with this. Uh, he says, uh, any people is worth only as much as it is able to press upon its experiences the stamp of the eternal. Very similar to his note in Will to Power that the highest expression of Will to Power is to stamp becoming with the character of being, which is basically just a slightly more <laughs> metaphysical way of saying the exact same thing that uh, to give our fleeting experiences the stamp of the eternal is well he says that's the people is only worth as much and so it's saying a culture is only only has as much value uh, as it as it is able to eternalize us and our lives um, and so he's it's a bit more concrete philosophically about what it means for the myth-making power to generate these religious ideas that give our lives meaning. Um, which again is 
I think we have to keep in mind that Nietzsche is not saying that this is a medicine, as, as Aristotle would say, for our psyches or for society in a sort of optimistic, theoretic, moralizing way. But simply that um, having tragedy or indeed any kind of powerful myth-making art is actually just required for the health of a, of a people or even of the individual. Um, and so he says the opposite of this happens when a people begins to comprehend itself historically and to smash the mythical works that surround it. Um, so there you have that. Uh, we begin to think historically and smash the mythical. Um, even now this metaphysical drive still tries to create for itself a certainly attenuated form of transfiguration in the Socratism of science that strives for life. But on the lower steps, the same drive led only to a feverish search that gradually lost itself in a pandemonium of myths and superstitions that were collected from all over and piled up in confusion. Nevertheless, the Greek sat among them with an unstilled heart until he learned to mask this fever with Greek cheerfulness and Greek frivolity. Um, so a restatement that the Greek cheerfulness is the, the aspect of the later Greek um, the, the the Alexandrian Greek from 300 to 30 BC or so who um, gathers up all the myths and superstitions of the world. Um, you know, a, a vast secularization happens is what Nietzsche says. Um, and again, all of this, I mean, it hardly bears explaining because this is exactly what has happened in our modern society. So I think very prescient critique. And Nietzsche actually applies it to our modern society in the next uh, paragraph. He says that the Alexandrian Roman antiquity has reawakened in the 15th century. And uh, I mean, he's really saying the enlightenment is the reawakening of the Alexandrian Roman antiquity. Um, and so he says that we have the same unsatisfied delight in discovery, same overabundant lust for knowledge, the same tremendous secularization, and beside it, a homeless roving, a greedy crowding around foreign tables, a frivolous deification of the present, or a dully dazed retreat. Um, everything subspecie seculae of the present age, uh, which means an aspect of the times, sign of the times, right? Um, I think that's all very straightforward. And so he says the same symptoms allow us to infer the same lack at the heart of this culture, our own culture, the destruction of myth. Um, and it scarcely seems possible to be continually successful at transplanting a foreign myth without irreparably damaging the tree by this transplantation. So really we just, we need a myth that we can actually take to be our own and integrate into ourselves and into our identity. That's not perceived as something foreign that we're holding at a distance and analyzing dispassionately. That will not do. Uh, that will just be more purely abstract intellectual knowledge, intellectual morality, abstract morality. It's not going to be um, a, an actual like vital revivification of our culture. Um, and the last paragraph that Nietzsche says, uh, he praises Luther again, actually in even more um, forceful terms. Um, but, uh, you know, it's more sort of uh, hope for the revivification of the German culture of the of the Dionysian to uh, bring him back to the his long lost home uh, whose ways and paths he scarcely knows anymore okay uh section 24 
Among the peculiar effects of musical tragedy, we had to emphasize an Apollinean illusion by means of which we were supposed to be saved from the immediate unity with Dionysian music. While our musical excitement could discharge itself in an Apollinean field in relation to a visible intermediary world that had been interposed. So once again, Nietzsche gives us a wonderful little summarizing sentence as a formula for understanding how these forces interact. We have an Apollinean illusion. He says we're saved from immediate unity with Dionysian music. Another way of saying that, the destruction of your self-consciousness and your capacity for self-reflection would mean you couldn't actually integrate the knowledge like experiencing the Dionysian without the mediating effect of Apollo basically means your consciousness is destroyed. So nothing of the Dionysian is ever brought into your consciousness unless it's in that Apollinian illusion. And then musical excitement discharges itself in an Apollinian field um, and in relation to a visible intermediary world. So we can come to bring the Dionysian before our mind's eye and actually understand it through the Apollinian. And Nietzsche writes, at the same time, we thought that we had observed how precisely through this discharge, the intermediary world of the action on the stage and the drama in general had been made visible and intelligible from the inside to a degree that in all other Apollinian art remains unattained. So, because music, right, is the waves of the will, it's a glimpse of the ontological thing in itself, the noumenon, by representing that, to ourselves in a form of an image, uh, tragedy attains a depth by this intermingling of the Apollinian and the Dionysian that no other art, no other purely Apollinian art can ever have. Um, where the Apollinian receives wings from the spirit of music and soars, we thus found the highest intensification of its powers. So remember, the word concept and the image concept sail on the wings of music, so to speak, and gain its power. And in this fraternal union of Apollo and Dionysus, we had to recognize the apex of the Apollinian as well as the Dionysian aims of art. And so there we have it. The tragedy is the zenith of both. They end up mutually enhancing one another. Uh, next paragraph. The Apollinian projection that is thus illuminated from inside by music does not achieve the peculiar effect of the weaker degrees of Apollinian art. What the epic or the animated stone can do, compelling the contemplative eye to find calm delight in the world of individuation, that could not be attained here, in spite of a higher animation and clarity. We looked at the drama and with penetrating eye reached its inner world of motives, and yet we felt as if only a parable passed us by, whose most profound meaning we almost thought we could guess, and that we wished to draw away like a curtain in order to behold the primordial image behind it. The brightest clarity of the image did not suffice us, for this seemed to wish just as much to reveal something as to conceal something. Its revelation being like a parable seemed to summon us to tear the veil and to uncover the mysterious background. But at the same time, this all illuminated total visibility cast a spell over the eyes and prevented them from penetrating deeper. So by representing the Dionysian, which is this, the primordial pain and contradiction at the heart of the world, something that can't, that represents the destruction of yourself, the, the, the fact that you are a fleeting phenomena that has arisen and will pass away and that there is this one, this primordial one that no sense can penetrate, nothing can understand, and that is the actual substance and character of the world to which we will all return. This truth 
the revelation of this truth through the mediating images of Apollinean art, what Nietzsche is saying here, it, it actually entices us. It shows us as if we're seeing the Dionysian behind this veil, because that's the only way through that lens, that's the only way we can see it. But that very representation therefore entices us to wish to rip away the veil, right? It's, um, so it's like, I'm showing you the image of this, like, um, it's like you're seeing the tip of the iceberg. That might be another way to put it, which then informs you there's this whole iceberg that's beneath the surface of the water that I can't see. And it makes you begin to wonder about what's beneath it until eventually you're ready to dive into the icy waters to see, right? Um, it's revelation being like a parable seemed to summon us to tear the veil and to uncover the mysterious background. Um, and so he says, quote, those who have never had the experience of having to see at the same time, they also long to transcend all seeing will scarcely be able to imagine how definitely and clearly these two processes coexist and are felt at the same time as one contemplates the tragic myth. So that's what he's talking about, wanting to see and also longing to transcend all seeing. You, you want to see the representations of this numinous thing that is beyond our understanding, which is what we're seeing in dramatized form in the tragic. And yet they simultaneously make you long for the direct communion with whatever that numinous thing is, which would mean transcending all seeing because it would be necessarily beyond anything your faculty of sight. Uh, it, it has no... It is necessarily not encompassed in anything in the faculty of sight by definition. And so he says, uh, those who've never had the experience of having to see at the same time, they also long to transcend all seeing will not be able to understand basically. And so that's his critique of the shallow or the abs shallow artistically, but maybe deep intellectually, the abstract people, the Socratic Alexandrian people, the critical, uh, engagement with art that, um, really the peak of the aesthetic experience is just that. And he actually gives us a wonderful example of what that I think all of you will be able to understand. Or it certainly makes helps helped me understand what he meant with it very, very easily, but we'll get there. So he said, the content of the tragic myth is first of all, an epic event and the glorification of the fighting hero. But what is the origin of this enigmatic trait that the suffering and the fate of the hero, the most painful triumphs, the most agonizing opposition of motives, in short, the exemplification of this wisdom of Salinas, or to put it aesthetically, that which is ugly and disharmonic, is represented ever anew in such countless forms and with such a distinct preference, and precisely in the most fruitful and youthful period in a people, surely a higher pleasure must be perceived in all this. And so... This is where Nietzsche is really stressing something that, again, maybe I haven't stressed enough throughout, but he doesn't actually speak of it too much, that tragedy doesn't necessarily show us the beautiful. The beautiful is certainly included in the Apollinean, and Nietzsche does emphasize that element uh, of rapture through beauty or what, whatever we, yeah, you might call it. But here he's emphasizing the disharmonic, the ugly, the the horrifying. Um, I mean, I suppose he emphasized it in the preface, but he really, he doesn't really emphasize it much until here that there seems to be a pleasure in that which is ugly. And what does he say? That life is 
is really so tragic would least of all explain the origin of an art form, assuming that art is not merely imitation of the reality of nature, but rather a metaphysical supplement of the reality of nature placed beside it for its overcoming. Um, so that's how Nietzsche has treated art throughout. He's rejected realism in art. Um, and so the fact that life really is tragic isn't enough to explain the portrayal of the tragic. Um, if, if art is really given Nietzsche's theory here to help us attain this um, religious sense of meaning generated through the mythic process, why is that achieved through the disharmonic or the ugly? Um, and he says, what does it transfigure when it presents the world of appearance in the image of the suffering hero? Uh, skipping a little uh, further ahead, he said, I ask about the aesthetic pleasure, though I know full well that many of these images also produce at times a moral delight, for example, under the form of pity or moral triumph. But those who would derive the effect of the tragic solely from these moral sources uh, should least of all believe that they have thus accomplished something for art, which must uh, must above all demand purity in its sphere. So he's reiterating, reemphasizing that point. And often people demand moral purity. Nietzsche is demanding aesthetic purity. That if we are going to... Um, determine what the um, purpose or the meaning of art is, it mu we must see what, it purely, what a purely artistic meaning or purely artistic value, valuation would look like. It can't be tainted by moral valuations. Um, and so he says, if you would explain the tragic myth, the first requirement is to seek the pleasure that is peculiar to it and the purely aesthetic sphere without transgressing into the region of pity, fear, or the morally sublime. How can the ugly and the disharmonic, the content of the tragic myth, stimulate aesthetic pleasure? So Nietzsche just actually um, uh, much more clearly put forward what I was kind of trying to uh, <laughs> summarize of his earlier concerns. Um, but it's interesting because he's he's saying, the way he's speaking here, you know, if you were to explain this, the first requirement is to look where... Well, what, what's the pleasure that's peculiar to it? What is the need that this is fulfilling? What are people getting out of it? It's interesting because here in the penultimate chapter, he has basically, it's almost like he's posing a question you might expect to find at the beginning of the work. And um, it's almost, I would say that the example he's about to give almost provides a condensed version of his argument in the whole book, but it maybe will be more... Um, inclined to agree with him now that we've heard his more extended argument. And so he says, here, it becomes necessary to take a bold running start and leap into a metaphysics of art by repeating the sentence written above, that existence in the world seem justified only as an aesthetic phenomenon. In this sense, it is precisely the tragic myth that has to convince us that even the ugly and disharmonic are part of an artistic game, that the will and eternal amplitude of its pleasure plays with itself. So it's all very clear of what he's setting up here. And uh, it makes reference to the most famous sentence of the book. Um, and so he says, uh, the primordial phenomena of Dionysian art is difficult to grasp. Okay, and there is only one direct way to make it intelligible and grasp it immediately, through the wonderful significance of musical dissonance. Quite gener generally, only music placed beside the world can give us an idea of what is meant by the justification of the world as an aesthetic phenomenon. The joy aroused by the tragic myth has the same origin as the joyous sensation of dissonance in music. The Dionysian, with its primordial joy experienced even in pain, is the common source of music and tragic myth. 
Okay, so by musical simile, Nietzsche can tell us something about the nature of the entire world because he's already said music is the true character of the world, um, right? Because that's rather than will to live, the will to Nietzsche really is music. Um, that's the most uh, real manifestation of what it is in, it, in its intelligible content at this point in his career, this book only. These statements only apply to this book. Um, but musical dissonance then. So that's what we're seeing in images or in terms of characters and storyline in tragedy. What we see that's ugly or terrifying or disturbing. Um, but which then is like, we'll think about Oedipus at Colonus, right? Of all the moral metaphysical crimes of Oedipus, um, the tragedy of what happens to him and how um, all these horrible things befall him. And then... In the end, though, there's a sort of magical blessing that Nietzsche interprets as Aeschylus imparting to us that, um, or sorry, Sophocles, um, I'm getting my playwrights confused, but, um, you know, telling us that the nobly striving and suffering tragic hero does not himself sin, right? Um, so it's, we might think of the function of dissonance in music. It is disharmonic. It's a, an attack on the perfect tertian harmony um, in which all three notes in a three-part harmony are not clashing with one another at all. And yet you introduce a little bit of dissonance, and then when you resolve that dissonance, it sort of... Um, it provides you with a release and you know not all dissonance is necessarily of a what we would think of as like supremely ugly you know like uh, a made or a minor second you know that's pretty ugly if you just sort of play the two closest notes <clears throat> you know together on a piano play like the two lowest keys and uh or just mash your hand over, make, create a bunch of minor second intervals, right? And it'll be pretty ugly. But dissonance even includes, you know, seventh chords, adding a sixth or a second or something like that, where the interval can get, you know, it it gives it a an air different from just an ordinary major or minor harmony where it, you get all of these in-between emotions and feelings. I love writing with dissonance in chords right uh where you can conjure these feelings that are bittersweet for example there are a lot of you know you have a that's probably the simplest way to explain it is that you have a major chord which is this is like a really dumbed down version but a major chord is happy a minor chord is sad right but in between you might have something like a um like a c add nine chord i'm really fond of that um this particular shape and you can create like a bittersweet uh chord which is between uh happy and sad it's sort of like melancholy but maybe hopeful at the same time it's very strange um but that dissonance covers a lot of ground you can range from that like really biting terrible dissonance to a more subtle and very enticing dissonance and the way oftentimes that composers create um 
dynamics within a song, a story within the, the music of the song, is to allow for dissonance to, um, you know, sort of increase and decrease the amount of dissonance, right? It's tension that pushes, it's like widening or uh, like a widening river and then a tighten, tightening, narrowing river where the water flows faster, right? That's how you create all of this, so... Um, so he uses musical dissonance as the, the explanation for the aesthetic pleasure that we get out of tragedy. And I think it's a wonderful and very easily, at least for me, easy to comprehend, uh, uh, analogy. And so he says, is it not possible that by calling to our aid, the musical relation of dissonance, we may meanwhile have made the difficult problem of the tragic effect much easier. Uh, yes, Nietzsche, you have. For now we understand what it means to wish to see tragedy and at the same time to long to get beyond all seeing. Referring to the artistically employed dissonances, we should have to characterize the corresponding state by saying that we desire to hear and at the same time to get beyond all hearing. And that's, a, I think, a wonderful description of what dissonance can affect in, in music. Uh, that you can't, you, It can have that effect. Um, you know, if you have like a... I'm tr trying to think of like a good example. I don't know. I won't. I won't get into more examples. But you can have a sort of swelling, dissonant drone in a song, for example, that can make you long to. I don't know. You're longing for the dissonance to be resolved, right? And for the to reach home, to head back to tonic again, and so you're longing to hear. You want to hear that resolution, but also maybe the dissonance is particularly sharp or harsh and it makes it um, hard to continue listening to it, right? Where you want to be, you want to be, uh, you see, you want to hear and get beyond hearing at the same time. Um, it's sort of the way that Nietzsche, so again, it's the parallel he's drawing with, um, you know, wanting to see the hero. Um, you, you have like this anticipation and excitement to see the hero meet his downfall um, while also loving and identifying with the hero um, and, uh, you know, wanting to see the Dionysian represented in images um, and yet wanting to see beyond all images and experience the Dionysian directly. Um, so he says uh, in this wonderful line, uh, the striving for the infinite, the wingbeat of longing that accompanies the highest delight and a clearly perceived reality reminds us that in both states we must recognize a Dionysian phenomenon. Again and again it reveals to us the playful construction and destruction of the individual world as the overflow of a primordial delight. Thus the dark Heraclitus compares the world-building force to a playing child that places stones here and there and builds sandhills only to overthrow them again. So this of course reference to Heraclitus's uh, the 52 fragment um, of the innocent playing child, um, which Nietzsche interprets in his pre-Platonic lectures as an image of Aeon, um, the boy god of the Zodiac, or rather he interprets that um, as the innocence of becoming, right? As the ever-living fire that Heraclitus sees as the force um, that you know, is manifest in all uh, appearances. This ever dynamic uh, reality of change and becoming 
where being is an illusion. Um, Nietzsche, uh, you know, conjures up his favorite uh, pre-Platonic philosopher at the end here to, um, well, to once again characterize the the one, the true nature of reality, the noumenon. And in a sense, comparing, you know, I, I mean, a lot of the prose here really reminds of his later work of um, the overflow of a primordial delight. That's what the world is, this world building force and the wing beat of our longing, right? Um, and so maybe to capture some of that creative child within ourselves and rebuilding the tragic or the artistic feeling within ourselves today. And so uh, in the paragraph that follows, he gives sort of a good uh, summary of the Socratic versus the, uh, the Dionysian, right? Um, where he says, a glance at the development of German character should not leave us in any doubt. In the opera, just as in the abstract character of our mythless existence, in an art degenerated to mere entertainment, as well as in a life guided by concepts, the inartistic as well as life-consuming nature of Socratic optimism had revealed itself to us. Yet we were comforted by indications that nevertheless in some inaccessible abyss the German spirit still rests in dreams, undestroyed in glorious health, profundity, and Dionysian strength, like a night sunk in slumber. And from this abyss the Dionysian song rises to our ears to let us know that this German knight is still dreaming his primordial Dion Dionysian myth and blissfully serious visions. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some more, like, sort of mock heroic almost stuff where he's like, you know, one day, we'll, one day we'll wake, the German knight will awake and slay dragons, and uh, even Wotan, will, Spear, will not be able to stop him, right? And so uh, most of the rest of the, yeah, the rest of this section is more of that sort of thing. Uh, I just want to point out that he... Dionysus versus the crucified, right, is the central opposition in Nietzsche's work. But here we have Dionysus versus the Socratic. The, the Socratic would evolve into Christianity in Nietzsche's view because Christianity is Platonism for the people. Uh, what that means is beyond the scope of this episode, but we've covered it many previous times. But um, it's interesting because I think, as I've said, while there's overlap between what those two interpretations of what modern society means, we could say that one is almost nested in the other, that um, the Socratic Alexandrian revolution is, uh, the Christian revolution in thought takes place within that, right? And that it's descended from it, and that therefore the Socratic, that perhaps both, both interpretive frameworks could be applied. Um, I think it's fair to say. And he later focused on the Christian as the real fatal flaw, the, the Christian element of European culture as the real fatal flaw in it and the real, the corruption of Europe through Christian morality, right? So that's one difference right there in the way I'm talking about it, that here Nietzsche, under the spell of Wagnerianism, as it's often said, speaks of the German character and he hopes for a rebirth of the Dionysian and the German culture. And so one of the ways that he's going to change his mind is by no longer regarding the Germans as the cultural saviors or even the potential cultural saviors of Europe as these dragon slayers who have yet to awaken and, uh, um, you know, go on their crusade to bring the Dionysian back. Um, 
Now, he certainly did not desist from his criticism of what's going on on the surface level of German culture, um, the ab abstract character of our mythless existence, art degenerated to mere entertainment. This is one of my own critiques of art uh, or of the inter popular interpretations of art is that it's regarded by many as just a form of entertainment and that you know, it's a it fits again into this Socratic worldview as Nietzsche has described it. Because if everything is like all of our stories and art, just they have worth insofar as like our moral instruction in society and in their utility for making us better people. Um, you know, and that that's the level that you could analyze art at. Then you would regard art as just simply you would look at how it's mostly used and the problem you would have with art is that most of it is just mere entertainment for people, um, you know, without regard for instructing them morally, right. Or that there's some art that's shallow and there's some that's deep in terms of how complex the plot is or how, um, you know, profound or nuanced the moral message is right. Um, but it's all just a form of entertainment. Some of it just might be more deep or more complex entertainment, but it's all just entertainment. Um, that I have uh, serious problems with that view, and part of it's because I agree with Nietzsche in this work, that I think true art does have to connect you with the depths of your being in some sense and change your life. Like really it should be reshaping you. Um, and that this ultimately the moral interpretations or significance of a story and the those intellectual analytical aspects of art are secondary and ersatz and they're not um they're not in themselves artistic or aesthetic they're actually opposed to the aesthetic and inimical to the aesthetic sphere and so i would agree with all of his um or i would apply all of these criticisms to our culture today um what what else life guided by concepts artistic as well as life-consuming nature of Socratic optimism. So he brings up the critique of Socrates as the sacrificer of life at the altar of truth here again. And uh, so much of this remains a, a critique Nietzsche continues to make throughout his career. As it, And I think it's not so much refuted so much as overcome or off offhabend by the Dionysus versus the crucified framework is maybe the most charitable read we could have to this book, that the problem of science and the problem of Socrates uh, is a preliminary step in Nietzsche's thought, and that actually we might not even really be able to have a good rigorous understanding of Dionysus versus the crucified without this framework, um, that this really completes um, the entire picture of this original opposition between Socratism and the Dionysian. The important changes, again, are that he would expand from Germany, his view being on Germany, to the whole of European culture. And his view of a cultural hero using music to go in and create this cultural revolution would be a project Nietzsche would later abandon, because uh, culture is the uh, purview of great individuals, and the extraordinary and rare in a society. And... Um, he would come to reject the entire Wagnerian uh, approach. 
And so now we come to the last section, which is uh, very short compared to the others, number 25. Um, and so he says, quote, music and tragic myth are equally expressions of the Dionysian capacity of a people, and they are inseparable. Um, so that, that idea has been, I, I don't know, I've stressed it throughout, but again, he gives us just, I, just a straightforward statement of that in a sentence. So this is like another section that begins with a very nice, um, straightforward formula that we could pull out of this, uh, text for, you know, summarizing Nietzsche's ideas here. Music is the generative force that's closest, the closest thing to the boundless will, the primordial reality of the one, and thus it is the origin of myth. Um, he says both derive from a sphere of art that lies beyond the Apollinean. Um, of course, because the Apollinean, of course, is the realm of illusion. It's the representation, the mere appearance of mere appearance, whereas the Dionysian is an artistic force that is a, uh, a dissolution, an encounter with the primordial one. Both transfigure a, re a region in whose joyous chords dissonance, as well as the terrible image of the world, fade away charmingly. Both play with the sting of displeasure, trusting in their exceedingly powerful magic arts, and by means of this play, both justify the existence of even the worst world. So, not to speak of the best of all possible worlds, even if you're in the worst of all possible worlds, tragedy... <laughs> The power of art is that powerful. The power of tragic art is that powerful as to justify even the worst world. Um, and so that completely runs contrary. I'm not going to give an, you know, an argument in defense of that, just to say that Nietzsche's instinct here, his impulse is completely contrary to the utilitarian, the, the evaluation of the world based on the suffering or of the world, for example, right? that the aesthetic is so alien from the moral type of evaluation of the world. Thus, the Dionysian is seen to be, compared to the Apollinian, the eternal and original artistic power that first calls the whole world of phenomena into existence. And it is only in the midst of this world that a new transfiguring illusion becomes necessary in order to keep the animated world of individuation alive. So, um, the Dionysian is more fundamental than the Apollinian. Maybe not as art forces as they manifest in like human, the human experience or representation of them, right? But that the Dionysian, to the extent that it's correlated with the noumenal reality and the Apollinian is cor correlated with the phenomenal, we can understand that relationship very clearly. The Dionysian, to the extent that we are absorbed into it, is being absorbed into the primordial one. So, and that's everything. That's the eternal, indestructible only true living being of which we're all manifestations. And so of course the Dionysian is the original art form and the world of the animated world of individuation, uh, only requires the Apollinian once, uh, in that individuated form, which has already severed away from the original eternal artist, right? Who is Dionysus. If we could imagine the, uh, if we could imagine dissonance become man, and what else is man? This dissonance, to be able to live, would need a splendid illusion that would cover dissonance with a veil of beauty. Uh, and so that's a wonderful image of man as dissonance. That is Nietzsche's view of the human being as a multitude, uh, as a 
whole, uh, dare I say, community of competing wills within itself, which often is a dissonance. These are clashing tones, uh, clashing motives. And given how he's used that dissonance uh, as an analogy for the type of aesthetic pleasure we derive from tragedy, and thus we could say that tragic art, if you want to know def definition for tragic art, generally that isn't just Greek tragedy. I would say it is art that provides, as Nietzsche says, it's a, it's a central character, that it aims at or provides that type of aesthetic pleasure that is akin to dissonance, that we um, only really have the example of in that uh, example of dissonance. And so it's a completely different idea from uh, the love of the beautiful or the rapture of the sublime or the willless contemplation or all these other aesthetic theories. This is a completely different thing that can only be found by the unity of these two art forces, um, which is simultaneously, <laughs> it's contradictory because you both want to um, be an individual and to be dissolved at once. And so he says, this is the true artistic aim of Apollo in whose name we comprehend all those countless illusions of the beauty of mere appearance that at every moment make life worth living at all and prompt the desire to live on in order to experience the next moment. Um, and so I think that's rather clear with everything we've said. Of this foundation of all existence, the Dionysian basic ground of the world, not one whit more may enter the consciousness of the human individual than can be overcome again by this Apollinean power of transfiguration. Thus these two art drives must unfold their powers in a strict proportion according to the law of eternal justice. Where the Dionysian powers rise up as impetually as we experience them now, Apollo too must already have descended among us wrapped in a cloud. So this is the last real philosophical idea in the work that the Dionysian can only be revealed to the extent that it can be encapsulated within an Apollinean image, right? Because it can't just be running wild on its own because that just destroys the individual self-consciousness and then nothing's represented at all. Nothing's individuated at all. And so they have to develop in strict proportion with one another. Um, and so, what does he say? Uh, so the end, I mean, he got, he kind of just uh, gives us a, a nice little, almost romantic image of the Greeks, uh, almost idyllic image of the Greeks, where he says uh, that this effect should be necessary. Everybody should be able to feel most assuredly by means of intuition. Uh, so <laughs> you should be able to feel it by means of intuition, provided he has ever felt, if only in a dream, that he was carried back into an ancient Greek existence. And so maybe an interesting thing, I guess, about this passage is simply how Nietzsche is repeating a habit he often has uh, throughout his work, stylistically, both at the beginning and end of his major works, where he sort of says, I'm addressing myself here to the free spirits, or to ye higher men, or ye hyperboreans, or whatever, right? Uh, whatever name, epithet he's decided to call us, right? Of this, uh, how's he begin the Antichrist? This book is for the very few. And so at this point in his career, we can imagine it would be very few indeed who would have the same sort of uh, deep, loving engagement with the Greeks and have an understanding of them that Nietzsche would, would uh, find commensurate with his own. But so then he gives us this passage, and I guess we'll just uh, finish by reading this. Quote, walking under lofty Ionic colonnades, looking up toward a horizon that was cut off by pure and noble lines, 
finding reflections of his transfigured shape in the shifting marble, sorry, shining marble at his side, and all around him solemnly striding or delicately moving human beings, speaking with harmonious voices and in a rhythmic language of gestures. In view of this continual influx of beauty, would he not have to exclaim, raising his hand to Apollo, Blessed people of Hellas, how great must Dionysus be among you if the god of Delos considers such magic necessary to heal your dithyrambic madness. To a man in such a mood, however, an old Athenian, looking up at him with the sublime eyes of Aeschylus, might reply, but say this too, curious stranger. How much did this people have to suffer to be able to become so beautiful? But follow me now to witness a tragedy and sacrifice with me in the temple of both deities. End quote. And that's the book. It's Birth of Tragedy. So, um, how great must Dionysus be among you if Apollo needs this magic to heal your madness? So, <laughs> um, you know, this is why he brings up, I guess, um, right before this, how they must move in direct proportion to one another, right? Advance in direct proportion to one another. Is that however great the powers of Apollo seem among a people, how much greater must be the powers of Dionysus? Um, this does seem to contradict his earlier idea about the Hellenic, Buddhistic, or Alexandrian culture, right? But only if we... I think maybe we can get around that by associating the the Buddhistic culture, not with it. We can class the Dionysian and the Apollinian as these two art deities, these fraternal uh, art gods who do exist in this necessary relationship to one another. Whereas you can have just dissolution or individuation uh, distinct from these manifesting in an Apollinian or Dionysian form. That really Apollo implies Dionysus and Dionysus implies Apollo. And that where they exist, they exist together. And that where one of them doesn't exist, you may have a dissolutionist culture. But it's not necessarily Dionysian. And you might have an individuation-based culture, right? That's uh, perhaps what uh, Alexandrian culture uh, pertains to. But it's not necessarily... Um, it's not necessarily uh, Apollinian. And in fact, Alexandrian culture is not truly Apollinian because um, without the Dionysian, it uh, becomes something different. It becomes this Socratic, um, Socratic type of culture. And so, again, at the conclusion, I'll just sort of list off the major philosophical themes that I think uh, we should uh, keep in mind um, when considering this work as a philosophical beginning uh, or as one of the philosophical beginnings to Nietzsche's work. Uh, for one, art as opposed to morality. We discussed that earlier. An aesthetic view of life rather than a moral one, but in general, just the opposition to morality um, as the most significant framework or way of looking at the world. Um, second major point, the breaking up of the term art or aesthetics into two separate and exclusive worlds or forces. The distinction between Beauty and reflections and individuated things, the Apollinian versus ecstasis or intoxication found in the loss of self or the Dionysian. Um, reason as a totalizing drive is shown to be in conflict with art. Um, uh, an intermediation between them is perhaps possible. And in fact, what Nietzsche 
hopes for when he talks about an artistic Socrates, right? But Socrates, Socratism, seen as reason taken to the extreme, to be the totality, it destroys art. It inevitably destroys art. And the forms that this take in modern culture are the critical layperson as the judge of art or public opinion uh, as the judge of art, um, you know, the moralizing uh, interpretations of art, um, or even in the, you know, harshest, most vulgar form, we might say, uh, would be like the real implementation of Plato's Republic, where you say, we're going to use political power to suppress the types of art that we think are a bad influence. Uh, optimism as the spirit of modern culture, rooted in the Socratic theoretic approach. And this optimism, I think we can safely say, it, it's a cogent critique because it's reflected in almost all the various political ideologies of today. And even in our religious ideas and art movements today, right? Um, to the extent that, you know, all actors in politics believe they're actively trying to change uh, society for the better and believe in things like progress. To that extent that they believe that, they're partaking in Socratic optimism, in the theoretical approach to life. Um, what else are some of the major ideas? We could say, oh, well, Nietzsche's revaluation of Schopenhauer's philosophy. While adopting Schopenhauer's metaphysics to a large degree, I mean, almost fully at times, Nietzsche writes of how life is always seducing us through life's various illusions to cling to life, continue following the, the will to live. And yet he doesn't, um, he does not advocate for a transcendence of the will to live and thus its negation and rejection as Schopenhauer does, but rather he sees in the power of Greek tragedy, the ability to continually stimulate us to have a lust for life that is renewed. And so in the Apollinean case, you know, we experience the beauty of Olympian gods and heroes and their moving deeds, and we're seduced to life that way. Um, you know, or in the Dionysian rituals, we're, we're, uh, that's another method of escaping from the painful individuation and the demands of class and caste and duty and all the guardrails of civilization and return to primal nature. We are allowed a, you know, a break, a transcendence of Apollinean illusion. Um, but that one that serves as a safety valve to allow us to go on living out that illusion with uh, that's, you know, his mean, means of talking about a metaphysical comfort. And so while Nietzsche later rejects metaphysical comfort, uh, something he criticizes in the very preface, right? Note why it is that he felt the need to employ the idea of a metaphysical comfort. It's in order to justify living and continue living. And, you know, Schopenhauer said man had a metaphysical need. This is an idea that goes back a long way, certainly emphasized by Kant as well. It's probably just the case that Nietzsche hadn't really interrogated that idea that we have a metaphysical need. And so he's thinking about it in terms of a metaphysical comfort. But he talks about it as like the form of healing and a magical potion for the Greeks to rejuvenate themselves with. Um, meaning a rejection of the values of Schopenhauer and his negative valuation of happiness. Because what good would it be to make use of a metaphysical comfort in order to go on living if there was fundamentally nothing to get out of life, right? Um, so the, the Greek alchemy, so to speak, their magic is that the wisdom of Salinas is reversed. Um, and in a sense, the wisdom of Salinas is the wisdom of Schopenhauer. 
And then finally, um, one of the most interesting ideas I would say that is worth holding on to is music as the closest representation of the will and therefore the ultimate ground of reality. Music as something which actually did birth tragedy, the primal artistic force, and all music which is contrived around word or image where the word or the image shapes what the music is supposed to be rather than the other way around is a counterfeit form of music. It's an Alexandrian forgery like the contemporary opera, right? So music is perhaps the truest experience. It's the truest direct encounter with a moving force which corresponds to nothing physical, nothing imagistic. And when composed seems to come out of us without cause and when it confronts us, it it does so with a power that's uh, independent of the word of the image. And so those, I, I would say, are sort of a summary of the major philosophical ideas in the work um, that go beyond the philological analysis of Greek tragedy and how it came about, or the specific comments about Wagner or German culture or whatever. These are just general philosophical ideas that we can, um, that we can uh, make use of. But beyond that, beyond those ideas which I think are unique to this work, we see those scattered seeds of future philosophical um, notions that would form up Nietzsche's philosophy. The waning power of religion, right? Uh, what, why is religion waning? Well, it owes to the loss of its myth-making power. So it no longer has the living, burning core of every religion. It's becoming a just a historical, um, you know, either an abstract set of moral principles or... Uh, a historical religion, which, as Emerson said, is dead. Um, and so Nietzsche basically says, because we've lost the power of myth-making, because we have lost the Dionysian, um, the current religion is going to ossify and eventually die. Um, so the need for some metaphysical comfort, which again is something that Nietzsche would later overcome, that is real and felt by the multitudes, which religion provided that. And so uh, we have a sketch of the God is dead idea, not in, in full, but we have the inklings that would lead Nietzsche down that path. We also have the idea of the problem of science, uh, the theoretical view of the world, and therefore an irrational relationship with rationality, right? Um, the life uh, being reasonable, even if it kills us, uh, that and even if it guts the myths that we depend on, the illusions that we depend on. Um, Nietzsche gives us a provisional definition of culture as the exquisite illusions that the more complex or intellectual civilizations require, or they begin to require them as the they're no longer satisfied with the vulgar seductions to life provided by, for example, mere hedonism. Um, and then there's even a passage or two hinting at things like eternal recurrence or the overman. Again, not those exact ideas, but the impetus for them. The idea that all, uh, you know, the worth of a civilization or a culture is based on uh, whether it can stamp its experiences with eternity. And um, the idea that the individual as they are now, as the species is now, is not valuable in and of itself, but valuable for what we may become. And therefore, the focus on life is a dynamic thing. And uh, on the other side of that token, the rejection of self-preservation is like a viable basis of a value structure. Um, and then perhaps the greatest thing is the 
evolution of Nietzsche's thought I mentioned earlier, that uh, the enemy that he barely mentions here, Christianity, and how Socratism, the role of Socratism was sort of taken up by Christianity and Nietzsche's philosophy. That Socrates was not really cut out to be the villain of Nietzsche's philosophy because he has too much admiration for Socrates. For all the, the shade he throws on Socrates here, throughout his work, when we look at the whole picture, even in spite of the fact he says much more scathing things even by the end of his career, there is always a sort of admiration and a respect for Socrates and the understanding that even in this work, as he says, Socrates may have fulfilled a great function, that he that the Greek society may have been dying and uh, sort of disintegrating anyway. And without this Socratic, this new Socratic worldview, uh, this new approach to anchor it and to take up its, as its new myth, the theoretical myth or view of the world, theoretical mythology, we might call it, because that's the big, the big uh, irony, right? That Nietzsche hints at the beginning of the work that Socratism is in itself making a new myth. Without that, maybe things would have been much, much worse, right? Uh, maybe there, that was something to anchor them and to allow them to uh, continue on living. Um, even if ultimately it, uh, in the long run, would uh, weaken and be a fatal danger. And so we see how all of these uh, sort of things that Nietzsche understands about or asserts about Socratism eventually become transferred to Christianity. Um, and as we've said before, I think you could view the Christian development as sort of nested within Socratism. And again, the best statement of that is the idea that Socratism or that Christianity is Platonism for the people. Um, just as a final note, uh, I'll say one of the things that we get from this is just on the emotional level, that desire, that longing that Nietzsche has for something beyond, something beyond the modernity that Nietzsche found himself in, something beyond the, the culture that he found lacking around him, that Nietzsche was ultimately and definitively untimely, right? And that his love affair with the Greeks is a sign of that untimeliness. And that in this whole engagement with the Greeks and birth of tragedy, that's the spirit that laces, I don't know, throughout the book that we see most clearly in his little dream at the end of getting to be transported as if in a dream back to ancient Greece. That in the Greeks, he sees something beautiful. He sees something that's still alive, something that can live again. And he really does wish to let his longing overleap the distance and draw the fairest soul into existence, as Faust declares in the Helena, as Nietzsche quotes him. You know, um, and you know his problem with the classicists and the Greek cheerfulness crowd and so on. It's not his problem. Isn't that they dare to bring the spirit of the Greeks into the modern age? Because that's exactly what Nietzsche wishes to do. It's simply that he doesn't think they understood the spirit of the Greeks, and therefore they did not accurately bring forth their spirit. Right? Even Goethe is perhaps guilty of this. And so Nietzsche wishes instead to truly understand the Greeks by understanding this central religious and artistic institution, which he thought was the origin of their culture and their vitality. And he wanted to understand it the way they understood it. And what he finds is this 
he breaks open into this whole world of philosophical ideas that we just, this whole bundle of them that we just talked about, many of which will blossom into um, even more beautiful and impactful, you know, ideas than the ones put forward in this work. But I just wanted to end on that note, that it's a note um, where we can just detect the love and the longing that Nietzsche has here. And for me, it will always be a work very near and dear to my heart because of how it explained many things to me about art and the aesthetic pursuits in life and music, and particularly the form of music I make, which heavily relies on the the dissonant and the ugly at times and the terrifying. And I wondered about that. How can that be considered beautiful? And um, that really the dissonant experience um, is something else entirely. It's a different kind of aesthetic pleasure that before Nietzsche, perhaps we didn't really have the philosophical language to talk about. And why would we? We're, if you're thinking in an Alexandrian fashion, right? I mean, you're approaching philosophically, or, or you're approaching philosophy unartistically, you're still getting stuck over the idea that um, art is this irrational thing that philosophy can't really penetrate. And so it's fitting that Nietzsche is the one to do this and take the first shot at being an artistic Socrates as a musician himself and a man who tried to write musically. And maybe that's why he was the first like aesthetician or aesthetic philosopher that I read that actually had something to say that actually illuminated things for me rather than like, if you try reading Hegel's aesthetics, um, which some of the ideas are interesting, but it's very far from a, it's very far from an, an engaging read. And as an artist, it doesn't fire any cylinders for me of like actually describing anything relatable to my own experience. Nietzsche did that. And uh, so um, yeah, I guess that's a good enough note to end on. So this has been a lot of fun. It took way longer than I thought. Um, I, I guess I'm glad I did it to like understand the scope of this. It gave me a very long, uh, interseason gap. I mean, I've still been producing content this whole time. So I'm, I, for those of you who have enjoyed this, and I'm assuming the only people who are listening to the very end of the last episode of this, because whenever you do a series on a podcast, right, you see diminishing returns because every, episode is a potential moment where somebody might say I'm done with this and jump off and then they might not listen to the next one. And so doing this like eight or nine part series or whatever it's going to end up being, you know, I'm sure I'm going to get diminishing returns in terms of people actually caring about it, but that's fine. I mean, this is, I don't know. I'm trying not to make content based on what the audience likes or responds to. I think I have to like kind of I can't, you can't ignore it totally, but I have to kind of like be insulated from that. Um, but more importantly that, you know, once you start something, you commit to it, you have to finish it. And I'm glad I've done it. And I understand the scope of like what a project like this is like. Um, it's given me the opportunity um, to, because I haven't had to like compile, it's not actually, the research is not as intensive for this because all I need is a copy of Birth of Tragedy, right? So in the meantime, I've been able to do a bunch of other research and read a bunch of other books and get really prepared for season three. And so when that finally uh, 
when we finally start to come out with those, I think y'all are going to be very uh, intrigued by a lot of the topics we're going to cover. Um, we're going to cover some very new ground. Um, I'm very excited. And it's going to stay very Greek. This is a very Greek, ancient Greek podcast for the foreseeable future until, uh, yeah, like probably through the end of the year. But I, I love it. And I, you know, it would have pleased Nietzsche, wouldn't it? So, in that spirit, uh, Evoe, um, and f- fairly well, my fellow Dionysian initiates, you are now part of the uh, Dionysian mystery cult of Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, thank you for listening. Goodbye, everyone. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.